We're looking this morning at the subject of the hurt of financial stress. And if you'll look at your bulletin outline, the first point is the volatile economics of the needy poor. Once again, we return to this very, very helpful book of Ecclesiastes, which contains Solomon's, may I say, God's wisdom concerning life and living. Extremely important book. And this morning's text is chapter 5, in which Solomon addresses the need for money versus the pursuit of money to get rich. And he addresses two classes of people. Verse 8, the first class. If you see the poor. Now, that's not really questionable. It isn't if in the sense that you're never going to see the poor. It's more like since you will see the poor. If you see the poor, and you will see them. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want, Mark 14, verse 7. And if you look at Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, you'll see where Jesus is quoting that thought from the law. In other words, the poor are everywhere. They're everywhere. In America, in the wealthiest cities of the world, you will find the poor living in meager dwellings, eking out an existence in what economists call the poverty level or below the poverty level. They set a certain level and then they rate people and families in reference to that median line. Often there is substandard income these people live at according to the government standards for the particular size of your family. The Michigan poverty level is at a rate of 16.8%. So almost 17% in Michigan live at the poverty level. The dollar amount for a family of four in poverty level is $20,050. So if you have a family of four and you're making about $20,000 roughly, uh, you're considered to be in the poverty level. Lapeer County's poverty level is at 10 0.3%. Now we're a rural county, but the poverty level here in our county is 10%. We have a population of about 89,000 in Lapeer County, so you do the math and figure out how many people are living in the poverty level. So our Lord is right. Even in a rural county like our own, the poor you will always be able to find. Sometimes the poverty is due to oppression. Look at verse 8. Solomon defines what he means by such oppression. It is where justice and rights are denied. Everyone's talking about their rights in our day. Well, think, think of a culture where rights and, and, and justice are denied. And he adds this thought, do not be surprised at such things. Don't be surprised when you see this. And he explains why. There's a chain of officials ruling over the poor, and each of them have their hands out to siphon off taxes and fees and tariffs and bribes, you name it. Money loss that the poor can ill afford, thus leaving them with a subsistence way to live. And Solomon admits here in this verse, that even the king himself profits from the fields. You know, property taxes generally are not negotiable because you're poor. You either pay your property taxes or your house ends up in sheriff's sale. Rules is rules. The government gets its cut. Solomon admits that. Now the Bible has a lot to say about oppressing the poor. It isn't like God isn't looking. It is that he's not observant. Job gives this commentary in his day referencing the wicked. Listen to this. Job says, men move the boundary stones. They surveyed land back in Job's day, just like we have surveyors in our day. And they didn't put metal stakes in the ground, but they put stones. 
And he says, men move boundary stones. They pasture flocks they have stolen. They drive away the orphan's donkey. They take the widow's ox in pledge. They thrust the needy from the paths and force all the poor of the land into hiding. Like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go about their labor of foraging food. The wasteland provides food for their children. You ever see, um, just break in here on this reading a minute. You ever see people rummaging through trash cans in downtown Lapeer? Uh, they're looking for pop bottles and things like that. That's the poor of our community. They're trying to get 10 cents on the can or whatever. Let me read on. He says, The poor gather fodder in the fields and glean in the vineyards of the wicked. Fodder in the field. You know what fodder is? It's, it's the leftover stubble from harvest generally used for bedding for animals in the barns. And Job is saying, you know, the poor are out there and they're picking, 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 picking among the weeds. They're in the vineyards gleaning. He goes on, lacking clothes, they spend the night naked. They have nothing to cover themselves from the cold. They're drenched by mountain rains. They hug the rocks for lack of shelter. The fatherless child is snatched from the breast. The infant of the poor is seized for a debt. Job 24, verse 2 through 9. He's saying, you know, the authorities even come in and they'll, they'll take your baby. They'll snatch your baby away to pay for a debt that you owe. You couldn't pay it, so they take your kids. You see here, there's no mercy in dealing with the poor who may be indebted to a particular landowner. David's prayer in Psalm 109 recounts similar atrocities perpetrated upon the poor by the wicked, and he prays this prayer against him. We wrestle with this. Should we pray a prayer to God against somebody? Well, David did. Listen to this prayer. He's talking about the person, the wicked person, who is oppressing the poor. And here's what he says to God. May his day be few. May another take his place of leadership. May his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. May his children be wandering beggars. May they be driven from their ruined homes. May a creditor seize all he has. May strangers plunder the fruits of his labor. May no one extend kindness to him or take pity on his fatherless children. May his descendants be cut off and their names blotted out from the next generation. May the iniquity of his fathers be remembered before the Lord. May the sin of his mother never be blotted out. May their sins always remain before the Lord that he may be cut off the memory of them from the earth. For... Now, here's David's reason for praying all that way. For he, the oppressor, never thought of doing a kindness, but hounded to death the poor and the needy and the brokenhearted. He loved to pronounce a curse. May it come on him. He found no pleasure in blessing. May it, never be, may it ever be far from him. He wore cursing as his garment. It entered into his body like water, into his bones like oil. Psalm 109. He's saying, it's in their blood. It's in the blood of the oppressor, in the, in the blood of the wicked person to just go after people when they're down and take their last penny and oppress them. Cursing and bitterness and rank unkindness. It characterized this wicked man's dealings with the poor. And David says, I'm going to pray to God against you. I'm going to pray that God will give you a dose of your own medicine so you'll learn something about kindness and compassion towards the needy. Solomon, David's son, observed, The poor are shunned even by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends. He who despises his neighbor sins, 
but blessed is he who is kind to the needy. Proverbs 14, verse 20 and 21. In the same chapter, verse 31, he who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Isaiah prophesied against the nation Israel, saying, No longer will the fool be called noble, nor the scoundrel be highly respected. For the sp fool speaks folly. His mind is busy with evil. He practices ungodliness and spreads error concerning the Lord. The hungry he leaves empty. And from the thirsty he withholds water. Can you believe it? The scoundrel's methods are wicked. He makes up evil schemes to destroy the poor with lies, even when the plea of the needy is just. Isaiah 32, verse 5 through 7. Now you can readily see that the nature of the oppression which occurs against the poor revolves around the necessities of life, food, clothing, something to drink, housing. Those who delight in cursing and mocking the poor instead of helping them. The injustice in the court system even when the poor are in the right. And finally, contempt for the poor just because they are poor. And that's a contempt for God, their maker. So this, this is the way the, the, the poor experience all this, these four things. And it's easy to see that someone labeled as poor, by any definition, is surely going to be hurting from the stress of an economic downturn. Do you know there are many people just a year or two ago who would never have been classified as poor have lost their homes, they've lost their jobs, they have had to move in with relatives or friends, they scarcely have two nickels to rub together. They have cut and cut and cut from their budget, not just the luxuries of life, but the necessities. And everything is bare bones because there is no money and there's no work. There are no assets. Everything of value, they've sold off to pay debts or feed faces. Poverty has come to these people that they have never known before. Department of Social Services in Lapeer is saying they are inundated with people who have lost their jobs, homes are going into foreclosure. These are middle class people that for the first time in their life are experiencing abject poverty. Now this brings stress on their marriages, on their homes. On their marriages because the spouse may bail out from a man who can no longer provide a nice home and a fine car. Children do not know why they have to go without when before there was money enough for anything they needed and anything they wanted. Mom and dad just bought it. Foreclosures may be looming. Loss of health because medicine and treatments cost money. People sometimes have to weigh, you know. Go to the doctors, high bill, groceries for the family. Hmm. Many a sacrificial parent chooses food for the family. Forget the medicine. Loss of station in life. The experience of mockery or false accusations against the breadwinner. On and on it goes. Lots and lots of stress because of being impoverished due to economic variables, many of which are beyond people's control. And that, as you know, and if you've been watching the news, that is the big issue in this election season. Jobs, jobs, jobs. Economy, economy, economy. As everybody knows, if the economy can revitalize and people have their jobs back, that'll take away a lot of the stress, the stress of financial reversals. So this is the first class. 
that Solomon deals with. Those that are poor, those that are oppressed. Second class, there's a volatile economics of the ambitious wealthy, too. And you might ask the question, what could possibly be economic stress for those who have money to burn? Yeah, right, Pastor. They're under economic stress. Well, do we believe the scriptures? Solomon lists four things of economic distress for those that are wealthy. Number one, an insatiable greed. Look at verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough money. Well, there's a problem. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. Here Solomon addresses the problem of greed. Oh yeah, I know that you don't have to be rich to experience the sin of greed. But here Solomon tells us that greed is the particular problem of people who have money. But to them, it is not money enough. They are never satisfied with their income. They always want a little more. Just this week, Stockton, California is in the news as the first major city, and it's about a population of 300,000. That's a pretty good-sized city. That's like three flints. So a city of 300,000 is going to declare bankruptcy. Why? Because they cannot pay the exorbitant retirement pensions of their public employees, which are negotiated and have been negotiated many years ago. 20 years ago, booming economy, no one thought about where we're at today. So, a retiring fireman, get this, Stockton, a retiring fireman receives $157,000 a year for the rest of his life, plus health benefits for life, all of this at the retirement age of... 50. Now, do the math, folks. Figure this out. It is reported that the city of Stockton has two public employees retired for everyone that is presently working. So more money is going into the retired than in the employed. And despite the city's attempt to negotiate with the government unions, the rank and file have refused concessions. They say, no, we want it all. Even if it breaks the city's bank, and even if it adds to California's $168 billion state debt. There's no view here of the greater good. There's no view of taking less to keep the city solvent. There's no view of... Considering the essential services, fire, police, medical emergency, all of those things to keep them viable. No, we want it all. And so, the city's going to declare bankruptcy, and guess what? They're going to lose it all. Because if you declare bankruptcy, all those contracts are canceled. And now you have to renegotiate. John the Baptist confronted this dilemma centuries ago when people came to him for baptism and he commanded them to repent. And so the various groups would come before him and they would say something like, well, John, what what should we do? What would you have us do if we're going to repent? And he would tell them. Well, lo and behold, Some Roman soldiers came to John, and they asked, And what should we do? And he replied, Don't extort money, and don't accuse people falsely, and number three, be content with your pay. Luke 3, verse 14. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. Different day, different age, same dynamic. Greed or lack of contentment is a stress factor for those who love wealth and are never satisfied with their 
income. See, you and I think, well, if I had a million dollars, I'd really be happy. I'd be content. And Solomon says, no, you wouldn't. If you had a million dollars, you'd want a million five. If you had a million five, you'd want two million. If you had two million, you'd want three million. And on and on it goes. Secondly, he mentions the fa uh, stress factor that goods come. Yeah, okay. But also goods go. Verse 11. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to <laughs> feast his eyes on them? You've all heard the expression, easy come, easy go. Well, what about the expression, hard work to come by, but easy to go? That's what he's saying is the problem of the rich. In the business world, this is called overhead. The more money you make, the bigger your enterprise. The bigger your enterprise, the more employees you have to hire. The more employees you have to hire, the more expenses, less profit. And Solomon sees this as a vicious circle. Increase goods, increase consumers, increase consumers, less goods, less holdings for the owner. So what does the owner get to do? His, well, his merchandise is just a meaningless, empty treasure of things to feast his eyes on, but never to enjoy himself. This is work without profit. This is work without any net gain. This is, everything is a pass-through. He's making money, yeah, okay, but he's also spending it at an alarming rate, so much so that there's little or no benefit to the owner. He just gets to look at it as it passes through his books. And his accountant says, well, you took in 50000 last month, but you spent 60000 that's really great. Now, if you've never been in business for yourself, then you may struggle to understand with Solomon what he's trying to say here about the businessman. But what he's saying, basically, I'll bring it down in the vernacular. He's saying, it ain't all a gravy train. The news has been um, reviewing and analyzing small businesses, and they bring these guys on. Uh, and, and they're telling how hard it is in America right now. One man, his health insurance went up 22% in 2011, up 28 per, more percent now in 2012. And so they, they weigh this. It's got 50 employees. 22% in 11, 2011 and 28% in 2012. Most businesses in our the economically depressed economy are either hanging on by a thread or are on the brink of closing altogether. That's lots of stress. And I'll, I would say this, it's stress for the conscientious owner, especially if his business is responsible for the income of a number of employees. Conscientious owner is thinking, you know, if I go down, they go down. If I go down, 50 families are going to be without work. Stress. It's mental stress. Number three, sleepless nights. Look at verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he, he's, he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. God's goal for us, Proverbs 3, 24 and following, when you lie down, you'll not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet, writes Solomon. Have no fear of sudden disaster or of the ruin that overtakes the wicked, for the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being snared. Proverbs 3, 24 through 26. That's the goal. But there are two weekdays that are the most worrisome to wealthy businessmen. And that's Friday's closing figures at the stock market and Monday's opening bell. Why is that? 
Solomon tells us. Do not wear yourself out to get rich. Have the wisdom to show some restraint. Cast but a glance at riches, and they're gone. For they will surely sprout wings and fly off to the sky like an eagle. Proverbs 23, verse 4 and 5. What's he saying? He's saying fortunes come and go. Riches come and go. And if you just look at them a little cross-eyed, they're going to sprout wings and fly away. Fortunes have been lost between Friday's closing of the market and Monday's opening. Deals discussed but not confirmed on Friday become broken promises on Monday. And this can make for many sleepless nights with uh, so much hanging in the balance. The wheeler-dealers of society fret about things like this all the time. All the time. The 9 to 5 p.m. millwright or auto builder or mason or beautician, what's he doing? He's sleeping. Whether he earns a little or he earns a lot, he's sawing them off in perfect contentment. And he knows, all things considered, he will have money to eat and pay his bills. He doesn't lose sleep over the thought of losing it all. And for the Christian, there's this promise in Isaiah 26, verse 3. You will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is steadfast, because he trusts in you. And that's part of the remedy to this whole idea of financial stress. Trust the Lord. What's the fourth stress? Well, the fourth stress is wealth that is hoarded and wealth that is lost. If you're open there to Ecclesiastes 5, look at verses 13. And following, I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hands. This too is a grievous evil. The man comes and so he departs, and what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Hoarding wealth, not putting it to work. It is reported that hundreds, yes, thousands of companies right now in America are sitting on millions and millions of dollars added together, they add up into the trillions of dollars. They're refusing to update their obsolete equipment. They're refusing to hire more workers. Why? Because of the uncertainty of the future. And so while they await an economic turnaround, they in some ways are responsible that no turnaround comes because they're sitting on the money it takes to kickstart the economy. Now the government tried to kickstart the economy, but that's not the way to do it. It has to come from the grassroots up. And another problem already touched, verse 14, wealth, wealth lost through some misfortune. The result? There's no inheritance. Leave your family. And so all the toiling as a businessman is characterized by, verse 17, great frustration, affliction, and anger. And anger. These are some of the stress factors for the very wealthy. They're never satisfied with money that they obtain. Their goods accumulated become goods that pass away and you just get to look at them as they go through. Sleepless nights, number three, and hoarding wealth that benefits no one and loss of wealth through poor investment strategy. There's stress to being rich. And I can see the wheels turning. Some of you are thinking, hmm, stress factors and all, I sure would like to give it a shot. 
<laughs> I'd like to try my hand at being wealthy sometime. What if the riches broke you emotionally? What if they broke you mentally? Uh, more seriously, what if the riches destroyed you spiritually? Paul warns people who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10. Jesus' warning is even more sobering. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? Mark 8, verse 36 and 37. You see, God doesn't sell salvation. He takes no bribes regardless of what you may offer. Jesus also taught that you cannot serve God and money. And if you opt for the idol of money, you will lose your soul. Not a very attractive alternative, is it? So watch the envy bug. Lest it bite you and you think, oh, you know what? I'd like to be rich. I'd like to try my hand at rich. Well, there's consequences for that. Now that brings us then to what are the helps for the financially stressed. Number one, first things first, and God must be first. That's what we need to get in our hearts. Jesus says, so do not worry, saying, well, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And he says, for the pagans run after all these things. You're acting like a pagan when you worry like that. And your heavenly father knows that you need them. But you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. Matthew 6 verse 31 through 33. When considering most people of the world, what is the pagan plan of economics? The pagan plan. David gives us a clue. They are like a lion hungry for prey, like a great lion crouching to cover. Rise up, O Lord, confront them, bring them down, O Lord. By your hand save me from such men, from men of this world whose reward is in this life. You still the hunger of those who you cherish. Their sons have plenty, and they store up wealth for their children. Psalm 17, verse 12 through 14. What he's saying is David makes the observation about the pagan world that they are men of this world, who consider their reward to be in this life. So they aren't seeking God and his kingdom. They aren't striving for righteousness. No, they are striving for gold, for money, to make their fortune, to make their mark in society. Again, the psalmist writes, the idols of the nation are silver and gold. Made by the hands of men. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. And eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. Nor is there breath in their nostrils. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Psalm 135, verse 15 through 18. Or again, he says, Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me, those who trust in their wealth, and boast about their great riches. No man can redeem the life of another or give to God a, a, a ransom for him. The ransom for a life is very costly. No payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. You're going to buy your way from uh, into God's heaven? 
going to buy your way from, from death? Psalm 49, 5 through 9. David is saying, it ain't going to happen. You don't have a big enough ransom payment. God's not into that anyway. So, the pagan plan of commerce is to grab as much of this world's wealth as you can grab. And then sit back in your retirement years, cash in your CDs, and live a life of luxury. Their God is money, gold, fortune. They never consider that their soul is what should be valued as priceless. They busy themselves amassing treasures on earth when they should be laying up treasures in heaven. Listen now to Job's perspective. He says this, If I have put my trust in gold, or said to pure gold, You are my security. If I have rejoiced over my great wealth, the fortune my hand had gained, if I had regarded the sun in its radiance or the moon moving in its splendor, so that in my heart I was secretly enticed and my hand offered them a kiss of homage, then these also would be sins to be judged, for I would have been unfaithful to God on high. Job 31, 24 through 28. So he says, you know, as a believer, I got to watch this business of resting in my riches, honoring them, worshiping things I shouldn't be. Now let me say for our pagan world, it is gold first. For the believer, it must be God first. The whole Testament teaching on tithing your earnings from your first fruits, not the leftovers, taught us as well that God comes first. And when this is our financial practice, God has made this promise. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. Malachi 3, verse 10. So, the first way to handle the problem of economic stress, God first. Now, you know, Satan comes along, I think he comes along about April of every year when you're working on your taxes. And Starla hands you your slip for your yearly giving to the church, to God's work. And you look at the dollar amount, and Satan comes along and he says, Wow, you really did well this year. You know, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and the wealth in every mine. You think he really needs all of that? You you know, that new addition you wanted to put on your home? Hey, that would have bought it. Or paid a good chunk. That new boat you were after or looking at down there at Chapman's Boating? That would have bought that. That's what happens all the time. And it's this whole idea of dangling the bobble of the world in front of our eyes. It's the same temptation that Christ experienced when... Satan showed him all the glories, all the wealth of the world, and said, All this will I give you if you will bow down and worship moi. It's no different. Our Lord knows the stress that we experience. So, firstly, God first. And then the other things will come your way. Secondly, be realistic, may I say biblical, about material holdings. Things wear out or they become obsolete to the point where their usefulness and more importantly their value is no more. Jesus made this point in Matthew 6:19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, rust, destroy, where thieves break in and steal. There's a problem here. Just this past week we had to replace the church DVD player because it no longer works. Two of my sons have their cars in repair because 
the brakes are worn out on their car. The strawberries my wife buys me for breakfast have moldy ones at the bottom of the box. Some of my socks have holes in the toes. My garden hose sprung a leak. My air compressor won't shut off automatically as it's designed to do. The, the, the coffee maker I heard this morning. All of you that are complaining about the coffee maker. It's downstairs and it's not working. It sits down there and gurgles. But it doesn't throw out much water or coffee. What I'm saying is decay, breakage, deterioration are all part of the material goods you and I strive for. Have you ever heard of gold? There's a lot of gold ads on TV. They're everywhere. Have you ever heard of gold corroding, rusting? Well, James, listen to James, what he says. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that's coming upon you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Well, we all understand what that is. Then he goes on. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workmen who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters are reaching the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. Wow. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who are not opposing you. And then he goes on and he says, Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming and see how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. James 5, the first eight verses. Now, corroded gold and silver are the payments due the workers, due the investors for their efforts, but which have been stolen and hoarded by the rich man so he could afford a life of luxury and self-indulgence. He thinks he's prospering. I got gold in my safe. I'm going to come back to Hanan. The Lord's coming is near, and he'll show the truth of Paul's perspective of wealth, which is this. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant and not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds. That's why you got the money. Be generous, willing to share, and in this way they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 through 19. That's essentially what Solomon says in our text, verse 19 and 20. God gives people wealth and money and ability to make make for wealth so that they can be generous to others, helpful, put it to good use, not hoard it, and certainly in the hoarding, not to harm those that you owe money to for their labors. So look upon material things as those things which deteriorate. So really, if you're going to put all your eggs in that basket, and you're not storing up treasures in heaven, you're in trouble. Number three, remember that none of what you own or cherish or value will buy you or accompany you to eternal life. I think if the world could just get a hold of that one, it would help tremendously. Look at verse 15 and 16. Solomon says, Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hands. This too is grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain? Since he toils for the wind. Job's analysis when he lost all of his wealth and even his children under Satan's attack was this. Very similar phraseology. Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall depart. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Job 1 verse 21. What this teaches us, brethren, is to hold your possessions, hold your bank account, hold your stocks and bonds, hold your real estate with loose fingers. Loose fingers. Not a tight grip. Because these things have no lasting value. They will not buy you a spot in heaven. In fact, these are the idols of your life. If they are the idols of your life, they will buy you a spot in hell. Do you remember the account of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus told? Let me read it for you. The time came when the beggar, that's Lazarus, died... And the angels carried him to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died, and he was buried. And in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up, and he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. And so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember... Remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. You had lots of good things because you were wealthy, you were rich. While Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Luke 16 verse 22. Brethren, eternity will tell who are the truly rich. Make sure that your values reflect God's, not the pagan world's values. They're out money grubbing. Gonna get my piece of the American pie. And I don't care who I have to step on or push out of the way as long as I get mine. Jesus says, yeah, you might even get the whole world and lose your soul. For what? 85 years of your life? 95? 105 years compared to eternity that has no end? Easy for Jesus to say. The wicked think, no. Jesus said, foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Matthew 8, verse 20. Jesus didn't come here to amass things. He lived the way he taught. And he said this to a teacher of the law who came to Jesus and asked this question. Teacher? Or it wasn't a question, it was a statement. Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. You just lead the way and I'm there. I'm with you. And Jesus said, oh, is that true? Really? Do you know that the animals of the wild have a place to lay their heads at night? But I don't. You sure you want to pick up your cross? follow me the believer says yes that's where I'm going to go because this world is not my home as the little chorus goes I'm just a passing through my treasure is laid up somewhere beyond the blue I hope your treasure is laid up there and if not you're putting all your marbles in the wrong basket Well, I have a nice house. I have a barn. I have a horse. I have a boat. I have a camper. I have this. I have that. I have them. I don't even have to work anymore. I'm living off the interest of my income in the stock market. Good for you. Maybe bad for you. Have any treasure in heaven? Have you put any investment in your soul? To consider the truth of the gospel, consider Jesus Christ's claim that no man comes to the Father except through him. 
considered the fact that no one's going to buy their way, no one can be good enough, even with good works, to influence God. There's a heaven. Everybody wants to go there. There's a hell. Nobody wants to go there. But the majority live their life to amass things because that's their God. That's their idols. May the Lord deliver you this day from that. Our Father, we thank you for your word, for challenging us with it. Please forgive us, even as believers, when we have put so much emphasis upon the material and where we look with longing eyes and envious eyes towards the wicked who, whose life is here. David says that. This, this is their life. This is where their reward is. And yet they have nothing gained for glory. Help us to really get the perspective. Yes, sometimes the Lord does make wealthy Christians. That's true. But unlike what we hear on the airwaves so much about the gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity, that's generally... A lie, it's not the case for 99.5% of believers. We live meager lives. Hand to mouth sometimes, check to check, that's it. But that's okay, because you promise to take care of us if we put you first. And not only so in this world, but in the world to come. May we not be like the rich man here who died and went into hell's torments and would have given all that he had for just a drop of water on Lazarus' finger to cool his tongue for a millisecond. I pray, Lord, that you will deliver us from the greed of our hearts, from the idolatry of things. Show us the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ, sins forgiven and heaven gained. Bless the truth of your word and stir us in Jesus' name.